Thanks for coming out. Middle of the school holidays. Affect some people, not others. Um, but it's nice to see you and we're going to have a bit of a conversation as per usual tonight. Uh, a little bit of a update as to where we are in this series. This is our third series uh, and final series for the year, for 2018 and formation. And uh, it's called Beyond Tribalism. And in it, we're exploring the idea of belonging, really. Um, and how do we belong in healthy ways rather than in unhealthy ways? Uh, and this is a particular kind of live issue in the world at the moment, I think, uh, in terms of the way in which people are finding a sense of identity and belonging uh, that uh, sometimes is helpful and also sometimes can be quite hostile and uh, and polarising. So that's some of the discussion that we're having and, and thinking about how Christian faith intersects with this and Christian community intersects with this uh, along the way. Um, how we grapple with this theologically and with our spirituality and faith journeys and journeys with one another and so on. So that's what we're doing. Uh, so we started off with our merry tale of the church uh, a month ago where we talked about the uh, the origins of this church as the subversive underground movement that was often flipping social hierarchies and scripts. Um, and yet this, after a few hundred years, uh, this transformation of Christianity into uh, allegiance and alignment with the empire and with power and the way in which that changes the whole nature of the conversation uh, and how the words of people who are speaking from the underside of power structures suddenly sound very different when they're spoken in the mouths of emperors uh, and people with armies and, and that changes the very nature and the tone of the way in which people were talking about what it meant to belong to Christian community, for example. And so you take a movement that is being persecuted and trying to avoid being killed for holding to this particular kind of spirituality and faith in the world to being the ones trying to uh, out others and kill them for holding to divergent views. It's an interesting flip. It, in many ways, it mirrors some of what hold, happens in the Old Testament text, which is really a story of how the nation uh, of Israel, its origins are a group of slaves who escape and form a new community and who then uh, spiral into becoming a community who enslave others uh, and the way in which that plays out and what, and then how the prophets rise up to critique uh, what has happened there. So it's a familiar tale in that sense, but uh, what we're trying to dig through is to say, how does, in fact, the Jesus story and our what Christians call the gospel, um, which is really just the, the story of of Jesus, how does that offer us an alternative way of being in the world? So that's what we're navigating our way through. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Uh, last time we talked, we talked about discussed psychology. I'll never forget Andrew spitting into a cup for the rest of my life. Um, if you were here for that, uh, but we looked at the way in which um, discussed psychology, which is a very uh, healthy um, part of baby and infant development, which is learning what is safe to ingest and what is not, uh, and pushing away and repelling those things that might be uh, un harmful or unsafe. Um, that same kind of psychology can come into play in terms of our communities and 
So often our pushing away of people who are different is because they trigger that same kind of psychological reflex. And that way our community is an extension of our body. Uh, if that sounds strange to you because you weren't here, then there's a blog online uh, for you and you can go and read a summary of it. As there is every, every <clears throat> time after we do formation, uh, between formation sessions, a blog will emerge onto the interwebs uh, that summarises uh, what we've talked about. So if you are, if you find yourself thinking, oh, that was interesting, but I forget everything that was said, um, which often happens to me when I hear something interesting, I go away going, yeah, that was, oh, such an interesting conversation. Someone says, what was it about? You're like, not sure. But I remember I liked it. <laughs> um, so that's why we put up the blog so that you can go and read a bit of a summary and, and refresh yourself with that. And also uh, you'll see the podcasts come online at some stage in the, in the weeks following formation as well. Uh, so if you want to listen to the whole thing again, then you can. Um, you might be listening to it right now. Oh, that was so meta. Anyway, um, so here we are. This is where we're up to. Tonight we want to talk about the body of Christ in a polarised world. So I want to do, I guess I want to talk about this in reverse actually. First I want to talk about where we're at as a society and some reflections on that. And then... Um, what it means to hold to a theology of church community in the midst of that, what kind of alternative way of being might we pose to some of what's taking place in the world at the moment. Is that all right? Yeah? Cool. Um, so it's an interesting dynamic trying to figure out how we talk about belonging in ways that don't end up Othering people who are not uh, a part of us. Um, sense of belonging and group identity is intrinsic to what it means to be human, right? So as long as human beings have been around, uh, there's a sense of needing your people to belong to, the people with whom you are safe, with whom you are held, with whom you find your identity, your sense of who you are, um, and in that sense there's that old you know, uh, phrase in Genesis, it is not good for humankind, to, for humans to be alone. Um, there's the sense that relationship and community and belonging are really, really vital and important to human, the human experience, the human identity. Uh, we actually come to know ourselves in the dynamic of relationship with another. It's a part of how we form our own sense of self, even as a little baby or an infant growing up, we we form our sense of self in response to and in reaction to um, to others, those who are bringing us up usually. So that's all really normal and natural and in fact very healthy. Um, but um, one of the things that can happen very easily is that the way in which we belong relies very heavily on other people not belonging because uh, then that enhances our sense of belonging because now we belong to something that they do not belong to and that makes us feel really good, yeah? Uh, so we want to talk a little bit about that dynamic tonight. Um, I think if you look around at the world at the moment, you see this, you see this idea um, playing out a lot. So I'm going to use this word as a framing word for tonight, which is polarisation. Um, so uh, I think we are living in this world which has been, over the last... 50 years especially, but 50 to 100 years, has been through 
substantial change. Uh, so we've got um, globalization. It's you know just to put a few of the the Asian words out there. We've got globalization. <laughs> we've got you know increased migration flows that are happening around the world. We've got technology that's developing that's enabling us to connect in all sorts of ways with all sorts of people that with whom we would normally would have not been able to connect. Uh, and so whereas perhaps in the past we were we saw ourselves as being relatively safe within our groups, um, be they ethnic, cultural or religious, whatever they might be. Uh, generally speaking, there were always people who were being excluded and marginalised from those, those big safe groups. Um, but for those for whom it worked, they felt very comfortable with that in some ways. Um, but with... Uh, all of this kind of shift and change. Now you can jump on a plane. You know, when my when my grandparents moved to New Zealand, it was quite a commitment. It was a three month or two month boat trip or whatever it was. I, you know, my nana and granddad got on a boat from England to here, then back to England, then over to Australia, then back to New Zealand, all on boats. Um, which, you know, that's different from jumping on a plane and being on the other side of the world the next day. So now it's much easier to be able to do that than it used to be, which brings us into contact with difference much more often, which probably brings to the surface two possibilities at least. One is that encountering difference helps us to see that our way of seeing the world wasn't necessarily the only way of seeing the world and that we might be enriched by encountering difference. Or the other is to get very anxious about encountering difference and see that as a reason for some kind of fear. Um, and sometimes, you know, there are, well, that's complex, isn't it? And it's, it's not usually all one or all the other. Um, so you, what we are seeing, I think, at the moment, and you might recognise this if you do read the news, I read it, I'm not sure why, it's very depressing, but I do. Um, <laughs> but we're seeing a lot of people sort of wishing for the way things were. Yeah? especially people for whom the previous system worked quite well. Um, because um, that's obvious, isn't it? You want things to go back to when things felt better for you. Or at least when you imagined they were better. I think the past often looks better in hindsight than it did at the time. Um, so that's one thing that's happening. Some people are looking back and saying, I wish things were like they were when the world was a bit more comfortable for me and I just saw people who were just like me uh, and that was cool. Um, so as a looking back, and I think uh, even looking forward, if you look at um, sociologists when they were talking in the mid to late 20th century, they were talking about secularization and the way in which in the West in particular, religious fundamentalism and religion in general was on the decline and is, and is on the way out in many respects. And what that's going to do is that's going to allow people to put aside all of those religious differences that divide us and people will sort of find their way together in a much more glorious kind of unity and diversity. Um, and in some ways that's kind of happened and in other ways... Because we are desperate to belong and form some sense of identity, people just exchange identities. So for people perhaps who used to be very engaged in a very fundamentalist form of religion might attach very strongly in the same kind of way to a particular um, even economical class group or political 
uh, identity or something like that, which is not to say any of those identities or attachments are bad in themselves, but if they become unhealthy, can become just as problematic as an unhealthy attachment to a certain kind of religious identity that causes othering and violence. And so you can see just as much violence um, in or more in Stalinist Soviet Union. Uh, it's maybe not the best example of a <laughs> of a society uh, in, in that way, but you know, there's 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 violence that takes place. There's scapegoating that takes place. There's purging that takes place. There's othering that takes place. Whether people use religion or other means to do it. Yeah, is that track all right? So um, I think a big part of the challenge is that we we really like certainty. And the feelings of certainty come a lot from being around people who all see the same as you because that enhances your feelings of certainty. And then if you feel a bit certain, then that feels kind of stable and stability is nice because especially when you feel like the world's a little bit crazy, who doesn't want just a bit of stability and certainty? Just let's lock things down. I want to feel a little bit comfortable, please. Um, and so if we can't find certainty in religion, then we actually we ended up finding it, groping for it. Re reaching for it somewhere else, I think. Um, okay, so where does this take us? Well, uh, I think when you look around at the moment, you can see this kind of dynamic playing out in all sorts of ways without necessarily mentioning particular um, political <laughs> scenarios. Um, obviously, North America is having its own... Um, situation? What should we call that? Uh, whatever's happening over there is a, is a thing that's interesting and um, un unusual. Uh, but what you can see is polarisation uh, at, at quite an intense level. Uh, and in some sense, some people rising up to say, we want things to be back the way they were, causing, an e causing a potent reaction to other people saying that's abusive and oppressive and we, we want to resist that. Um, and, and, and seemingly at the moment, because especially uh, some in particular are interested in inflaming that divide because it serves particular power purposes, uh, that becomes a pretty difficult um, thing to negotiate as a community, as a society. Uh, and Europe has its own complexities at the moment trying to deal with what does migration I mean, in the fact, this is a this is a conversation going on all around the West at the moment. I think the West, um, without wanting to get too political or whatever, because obviously, you know, just holding a conversation. But I think historically, we've tended to outsource our problems and put them far away. So if we are doing things that are uh, violent or oppressive or manipulative or problematic, as the West, we've done them in places far away from us so that we don't have to see it. Uh, and then when the consequences of some of that come to our doorstep, we suddenly go, what's going on with this? this we must stop this outrage. Um, and so we are being confronted in the sense with the consequences of, of, of our um, behaviour. Um, yes. As Jürgen Moltmann uh, said, we are floating on islands of prosperity. Uh, we, are, we are on island, living on islands of prosperity, floating on the sea of mass human misery, you know. Um, 
We're living on islands of prosperity that are floating on a sea of mass human misery, um, which is not, you know, the most inspiring quote, but it is confronting. And, and what he says is, look, we've made a lot of progress in the West, but the progress has come at the expense of uh, the rest of the world and the future generations. So we've taken things from the earth that in an unsustainable way and we've taken things from other nations in ways that enhance our progress. Um, and he suggests that if we had not taken from others and from the future, we would have made probably much less progress, progress in inverted commas, than, than we have, which is a confronting and challenging idea to contemplate. All that to say, um, there are consequences to that as well, that ultimately, I mean, we're still facing the consequences of Christian, Muslim um, violence, and in particular the Crusades from the 11th, 12th, and 13th century. We're still facing the consequences of that in the West now and, and, and turning around and blaming others for that problem instead of owning our part in that story. Um, so, yes. Good. What a wonderful picture we're painting. <coughs> okay. Uh, so let's add to this a little bit of, uh, just briefly, I won't say much on this at all because I'm not an expert on it. The other thing that happens when you encounter someone with whom you disagree is that if they scan your brain at this time, something you probably haven't done, uh, what you find is that your amygdala is the thing that is activated and your prefrontal cortex um, darkens on, on, the, on the way it shows up on the scan, which means this. When you encounter someone with whom you disagree with, the thing that gets triggered in your brain is fight or flight rather than thinking and reflection. And uh, conversely, when you encounter someone you agree with, you experience pleasurable feelings in your brain, um, which, is a, which is, if you think about our, our history as a species, that served as safety, Right? You encounter, oh, here's someone from my tribe with whom I am safe, so I, I experience pleasurable feelings because we are going to protect each other and look after each other. Um, but that same kind of reaction causes problems or challenges for us now in the kind of world in which we live. And so you encounter someone with a different opinion uh, to varying degrees. Some of you, will, will this will happen less for and some of you more. Um, but the initial instinctive brain response is to go um, danger, alert, rather than, let me listen to what this person has to say, for they hold a different opinion to me and I might learn something in the process of conversation. Um, yeah, that's not the instinctive response. Um, and you, you find this happens in, um, I, would, I would suggest hypothetically could happen in religious communities, uh, in churches, for example, wherein you, and you find someone with a different idea to you, um, and often the response is, um, is fight or flight. It's either um, get, a, get me away from that person or get that person away from me. Um, and if you've, I mean, it's particularly good if you've got, you know, one individual in particular who's maybe controversial, then you just, you, you just out them. You just push them out. That's good. That's the way to do it. Um, so by the end of tonight, our aim is to... Find the troublemakers among us. <laughs> Cast you out into the darkness. 
Um, so what you would see, mentioning the prophets, which Greg did there, a lot of what the prophets uh, in in the ancient world and in, in our in um, ancient Israel, for example, in the Old Testament, the prophets tend to there were, there were prophets who lived who operated from within the king's courts, but a lot of the prophets the the Bible uh, refers to are prophets who were outside the system, uh, offering this critique of this very kind of when the system would become closed and exclusive and oppressive then the prophet's role and to some degree was to speak into that and to uh, and usually to challenge fundamentally the the center uh, and this is something that Jesus does as well and something which gets him killed in the end which is to confront and to challenge the core the center of the religious power and and, and group who had created the the certain framework on which everybody had to comply all right good um, I'm going to get myself into trouble, have to cast myself out of the group, and then uh, you can decide what to do after that. Um, right, so it's happening kind of on these global levels. The same thing happens at the levels of family and and local community, right? So church communities, but even down to the level of family um, where maybe the person who names an uncomfortable truth is not embraced within the family and thanked for naming that, but is often shunned or excluded in some kind of way. And so uh, this kind of um, group protective mentality, uh, which develops as a very safe mechanism for us, uh, I think now has become also problematic unless we have some kind of framework for navigating it. And I think spirituality at its healthiest, uh, instead of further inflaming that, actually provides us with um, a way of being in the world which can help us to move beyond that binary, um, polarised existence. Yeah? Yeah, all right. So we ask ourselves the question, what is the role of the church community in this kind of world? And definitely the role of the church has changed, right? So if you think back to Christendom, when Christianity was the major religion of the West, um, the church essentially functioned as the manager of all of these identities and and senses of belonging. Um, But now the church finds itself de-centred in the West, um, except for maybe the the North America, which is its own, again, um, thing. Um, Largely, the church has been decentered, uh, which many Christians have um, lamented because they miss being at the centre because it's a nice feeling. Uh, but I think it's a wonderful thing for the church um, because I think it gives us uh, fresh eyes to uh, look at what it means to be healthy community in new ways. Um, so we're going to come back to this question uh, in the second, well, versions of this question in the second half. For now, I'd like you to just hold that question in your mind and let it um, uh, percolate. Yes. Cool? Okay. So, 
One of the things that we're trying to do, for example, I think at Edge in general and, and Formation as well, is to hold a space where we can uh, explore and discuss together in ways where we don't all have to agree all of the time. And that can be quite a challenging thing to do in a church community, actually, because everybody's, I think many people are used to experiencing church community as being centered around, these are all the things that we agree on, and that's why we can hang out together. Um, but what we're attempting to explore in some ways is actually let's belong together and discuss the things that we um, believe and hold to and learn from one another and open ourselves up to each other's experiences. And we do that with varying success, I'm sure. And I'm probably impose all my views on you from time to time. But that's what you get for me being up here. So, yeah. um, so what I'd like to do is take a bit of a theological turn. Uh, so we'll look a little bit at some theology. And then that's going to open us up into a few questions to have some discussion around. All right? Yeah. Okay. So I want to um, go back to the formation of the church. Formation. See how I dropped that in there? Yeah. That's, I know. That's awesome. Awesome humour. Uh, so I want to go back to the book of Acts, which is um, in the New Testament. And it tells the story. It's set just after the um, – don't worry about that second quote there just for a moment. Um, uh, Luke is uh, said to be the author of this volume, and it's a two-part volume, Luke and Acts split in half. Um, both Luke and Acts are about the size of a papyrus scroll. Um, so the suggestion is that um, Luke takes up one scroll, there's a break essentially, and then Acts picks up on the next scroll and away it goes because they're both just under 20,000 words in Greek, which fits on a scroll nicely. Um, great information for you. See, this is why you come. Um, so... So you'll see uh, Acts picks up with, in my former book, I began to talk about this, and now I'm going to continue. That's essentially, so, so the two fit together. Luke is telling the gospel of Jesus, and Acts is then talking about the community that forms around this gospel called the church in, after Jesus does his thing. And Acts is exploring the journey of this church community. And in particular, exploring the way in which this thing starts off, and we, we talked about this a month ago in the first session of the series, how the church starts off as this Jewish, like a subgroup of the Jewish religion. It's a group of Jews who happen to think that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. So it starts out as this, uh, certainly that's the way the Romans see it. Oh, it's, the, it's a weird kind of subgroup of the Jewish thing. Um, but Acts tells this story of how it moves from that to becoming uh, a much more universalizing story where it becomes inclusive and starts to reach beyond some of the boundaries, in particular ethnic and cultural, that keep people divided from one another in the first century. Um, one of the things that Luke does all the way through both Luke and Acts is talk about the spirit a lot. So it reflects on this idea of the spirit, which in the Hebrew is the, is the ruach, which is the uh, sometimes translated as breath, 
wind or spirit. Uh, and in the New Testament, the Greek word being pneuma, pneuma with a P uh, at the start, but it's silent. Yeah. Also, extra knowledge for you tonight. Um, so pneuma is the Greek equivalent of ruach, uh, and that's the word they use for spirit and to talk about the spirit of, of God, the spirit of the divine, right? that this, this breath or spirit or, or life um, that is present uh, in uh, the human experience um, and in particular ways present throughout this narrative in Luke and Acts. And so right from the beginning of Luke, if you compare, if you, for example, if you, if you read the start of all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you'll find that and if you count up the number of times the word spirit is used, just even in the first few chapters, you'll find the spirit in Luke is like over and over and over and over and over again. It's one of the big features of Luke's writing that he's highlighting this presence and activity and work of this divine Numa or spirit that is somehow at work in this uh, story of the Christ, the anointed one. Um, Luke's first sermon for Jesus is, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and freedom for captives and, and so on. So uh, it's shaped by this presence of the spirit uh, in the story. And that flows on then into the book of Acts where the spirit again is present right in the beginning days of the church and then throughout the narrative of the church and its spread throughout the world. And one of the things that scholars of the New Testament and in particular of uh, Acts note is this thing here Aaron Kueka mentions, um, which is that sections of the text in Acts where group and social identity are at stake contain the highest density of spirit references in all of Acts. In other words, whenever you're dealing with Group and social and personal identity, that's where there's a cluster of talking about uh, the spirit, the activity of the spirit, the presence of the spirit in the community. And so whenever those issues are being discussed, the spirit seems to be brought into that conversation by Luke much more than at other times. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, if you read um, Acts chapter 2, very peculiar story. Um, where these followers of Jesus, now Jesus has, has been and gone, and they are gathered, and there's this metaphorical or, or this imagery that's used. It's all a bit vague and mysterious. There's a sound like a rushing wind. Uh, there's what appears to be like um, tongues of fire that sort of appear over their heads. Uh, but it's all sort of alluding to... Um, without exactly being able to say what's going on. And then the strange things happens where they, they spill out onto the streets and they speak in other languages, which is an odd thing to do. And there are people there, um, because at that particular time in the city, lots of people are gathered from around for the Feast of Pentecost, which is celebrating the giving of the Torah and the law at Sinai. So back in the uh, Exodus story, after they've escaped from Egypt, they go to Sinai and the law is given through Moses. Um, and that's the Feast of Pentecost remembers that in the Jewish faith. And so everybody's come to town to have the Feast of Pentecost together. And 
Then these strange people who've been hiding away in a room for a while, since the Passover feast really and, and all the events of that, they've been tucked away and now they suddenly come bursting out uh, speaking in all of these languages. That's the way the story goes. Very strange. And there are all these people because, what's the best way to describe this? We've still got a situation where Jewish people are scattered throughout um, the world. They have been since the exile in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, when Babylon destroys Jerusalem, some people are taken to Babylon, lots of Jewish people are scattered throughout the world, uh, throughout that part of the world. And although Jerusalem is rebuilt, many Jewish people remain scattered throughout various lands and locations. Uh, but they all make the trip in to Jerusalem at this time to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. So there are lots of Jewish people there who actually speak other languages. Um, so it says in the text that a crowd of devout Jews from every nation under heaven, a little bit of exaggeration there, but it's okay. We'll forgive them. Um, gather at the sound and are amazed to hear the disciples speaking in their own native language. So they hear these disciples speaking, but they hear them in the language that they speak back in their homeland. Um, which is a bit different from the kind of speaking in tongues that I grew up with. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> the... The description of the Pentecost kind of experience itself with the fire and the wind and so on is very, it uses imagery actually that's quite familiar. There's a Jewish writer called Philo who talks about the giving of the law of Sinai, uh, at Sinai to Israel. And he talks about fire from heaven. Uh, he talks about a voice that emerges from the fire and becomes articulate, understandable speech. And that's what gives them the law. So there's this kind of mirroring of this ancient story for Israel and what's happening here in this group of um, followers. And so the law, which was really defining for this formation of this people, having escaped from slavery in Exodus, now it's this strange, peculiar uh, breath, wind, spirit present among these people that now is central to the formation of a new people, a new group, a new sense of identity together. You tracking? All right. Told you we'll get a little. We'll get a little into it. We'll pull back out of this at some stage to breathe and to um, discuss. Um, so, one of the things that when scholars look at this text, they note is this is kind of unnecessary. In other words, these Jewish people, evidence tells us, would have been bilingual. In other words, they spoke the language from their own land, but they also all spoke a common language together. So it's not like they couldn't understand one another until this happened. It's what they call an unnecessary miracle. Um, because they could have just come out speaking the language that everybody understood and everyone would have been like, cool, right? So it wasn't needed for everybody to understand. Um, there's some symbolism going on in this, in this miraculous story, which is that these different languages and by language then also cultures, and, and these differences of all of these people that were gathered are all somehow affirmed and included in this story to say what's happening here is not just about one group, lockdown, people just like us. Somehow what's happening here, uh, what the Spirit of God is doing if, uh, in, the, in their language is uh, 
uh, is about uh, something that reaches beyond all of those things that normally separate us and divide us, but is reaching beyond and is something that affirms and includes you in the language and the culture uh, that you are from, yeah? Um, which is beautiful. Um, sometimes it's talked about as a reversal of the Tower of Babel stories. If you don't know that story, well, then that's a story right back in the uh, beginning of the Bible, the Old Testament, where it's, again, a peculiar mythic tale of these people who all spoke the same language and built this tower to heaven, and then God says, oh, this is you know, the tower's getting quite close, uh, <laughs> which is, like, funny. And, and maybe it's supposed to be funny, I'm not sure. But uh, God's like, I know what I'll do. I'll make them all speak different languages from one another. And, they, and then they're, suddenly they can't understand each other and they can no longer build the tower together and they scatter throughout the earth. And that's kind of the Bible version of, and that's why there are so many languages in the world, you know, which is... Um, is it? It's a myth, is it? I'm going to say. I'm going to say it is. That's my suggestion. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> but but again, um, <laughs> in a weird sort of way, what's happening there is Babel starts to stand as a symbol of um, empire of what happens when we gather together under our own steam and try to build something impressive for ourselves that we can then use to become powerful. And so language of Babylon later on becomes a similar symbol as Babel, which is the language of empire where everybody has to conform. And so in some way, the giving of multiple languages in that story, it's never actually called a curse or anything like that, although sometimes that's the way the story is told. In some ways, it's a blessing to the people because it, just, it stops them from building this empire system that they are trying to build um, and instead sends them into the world in diversity. And in Acts chapter 2, um, what you don't get is suddenly they all start speaking the same language as each other. What you get is an affirmation of this diversity by saying that each one understands in their own language and in their own tongue. It's this beautiful imagery of of reaching beyond this what is familiar and safe to say all are all are included and welcome in what the spirit is doing. Are you with me? All right. Uh, okay. So um, language and culture inseparably connected. Some of you I know are learning Tereo at the moment. Who's doing who's doing some Tereo class? A few of you. You will <laughs> Kia ora. Uh, you will find as you're doing that that language and culture go together. You can't take language without culture because actually language is the medium through which culture is understood and expressed and interpreted and, and vice versa. And so we don't, it's not just multiple languages here. There is multiple cultural identities that are being affirmed. Uh, next time we're going to look at the implications this might have for uh, religious um, discussions as well. Because language and culture are also by nature related to religious constructs and identities. <laughs> but that's just, uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes next time. Ah, that'll be good, I reckon. Don't, don't freak out. I'm not going to say anything too crazy. Oh, should I? Oh, okay. All right. I will, I will say something too crazy. Um, so again, we've got this unnecessary miracle. It's a beautiful symbol of this, uh, of this inclusive, diverse embrace uh, that the work of the Spirit is doing. Um, and then one of the other big stories we looked at a little bit last time around the issue of cleanness and uncleanness, which is Peter's experience, where he has the vision of the, 
the what to a Jewish mind was unclean food, and God says to him, you need to eat this. And then that becomes a metaphor for his inclusion of non-Jewish people into the community. Uh, and so again here, Peter goes off to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is not a Jew. Peter shouldn't go into the house as a good Jew in the first century, but he does. He shouldn't eat with them, but he does. And he shouldn't share the gospel with them, but he does. And then again, the spirit of God somehow is present in this unusual way in this experience before Peter has a chance to try to withhold it, um, which he probably instinctively would have done. And and then they all look at, what they do is they look at the spirit being experienced by these non-Jewish people and they're like, well, if God's into it, then I guess we've got to go with it, basically. That's the, that's the conclusion. That story is repeated three times in the book of Acts. Um, which you would never do if you were trying to save room on a very expensive papyrus scroll, guys. Uh, just to bring that back into the... So the, if you repeat a story like that in first century writing, it's like the ancient version of bold, highlight, underline, right? Uh, the reason the story gets repeated and almost gets repeated in full um, within a few chapters is because Luke's trying to say, this is a really important story you should pay a lot of attention to. Uh, and, and it causes a lot of ruckus in the church and they have to come together in, in Acts chapter 15 and go, what are we going to do about this? Because there are a bunch of Jewish people who are like, this is not, is this allowed? I don't think this is allowed. Uh, and everybody's like, well, it seems to be allowed. <laughs> this seems to be what God is doing. So they say it seemed good to the Spirit and to us. And that's their conclusion of their of their council, uh, and so there's this movement in towards um, embrace. And for these gen, you know, up till then, a Jewish person could say, "Well, you can be a part of us if you go through the process of conversion to Jewishness." So with that circumcision, following the Torah, all of that kind of stuff. But the conclusion they come to here is actually, you don't need to convert to Jewishness to Judaism. You can just be Gentile. You can be what you are and you're welcome. You are invited into what it is that God is doing. And not even, I think sometimes the story is told us, you can be in even though you're Gentile. I don't think that's enough to say that. I think we have to say um, you're welcome in just as much as anybody else with all of who you are and what you bring in your identity and, and all of that. Yes, Andrew. Yes, well, maybe we'll focus in more on that in a couple of weeks' time. Well, three weeks, because we're going to skip Labor Weekend. Um, but yeah, that's, that's an interesting question, right? And there's, a, there's, a, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff we'll say about that. But great question to hold in mind and come back to. Right. Yeah, interesting question. To which we shall return. Yes. Um, it's, it's, it's great though that those are the questions that arise when we start to think about this kind of stuff, right? And, and, and those are the questions we're sort of trying to explore. So it's like it all fits together. It's amazing. Um, okay, so, so we've got this, this in the, right in the formation of the church, we've got this beautiful imagery and symbolism of, of diversity and inclusion. And then we find that also flowing into the language of people like 
um, Paul, uh, who, despite his social awkwardness, I'm sure, um, says, he just seems like that, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he, um, he, he uses this image of the body of Christ, um, where we are all a part of this body. And then he says, we have our different gifts, but by the same spirit. So he uses now the language of spirit to say, it's the spirit that gives us actually our differences. But because it's the same spirit that gives us our differences, it's the differences that are actually part of the thing that hold us together. So the different gifts, but the same spirit. So we get this diversity and unity picture. Not unity and uniformity, not unity and conformity, but unity in our difference and in our diversity. Um, and then even that takes us back to the Christian, you know, tradition has held to this doctrine of the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, which again is the symbol of, even at the very heart of the divine, um, diversity and unity present together in this community. And so if we are the image of God, which is the Judeo-Christian claim, then in some ways we image God only in a community of unity and diversity, only as we actually encounter one another's difference and find ways to uh, understand and come together in communities of belonging where we're not all the same. Right, how's that? That sounds like um, half time. And what we're going to do after the break is come back with some questions. Yes? Now, if I've, for, if I've in any way uh, triggered your amygdala in the first half um, by suggesting something that's different to what you might have thought, that's okay. Just soothe that with some beautiful feelings and, um, and allow your prefrontal cortex to relight up with love and reflection. Uh, and then we're going to have some discussion. And, oh, right. Oh, look, I've missed all my slides again. Classic blunder. Um, here's the questions we're going to discuss after the break and see where they go. So, what could be revolutionary about a Christian community in today's society that is grounded in openness to difference? What do we gain from hearing and experiencing each other's differences? How do we hold to beliefs that are important to us without them becoming weapons? All right. So, um... One of the interesting things about this conversation, and, and this is one part of a conversation in some way, uh, we're going to, next time we're talking about how we negotiate other religious frameworks and, and what do we do with that. And then the final session of this series before we have an end of year dinner, which will be fun, that'll be fun, uh, is to talk about how do we belong because I think um, <laughs> fear and otherness are really, really compelling ways to belong to community. They work really well. Uh, and in that sense, it's almost, it's hard to pick at them because you pick at them and you're like, well, how will anyone continue to belong if they're not afraid not to? Um, <laughs> and, and so what a lot of, I think, 
religious communities of all persuasions and communities in general do is not pick at that, but to use it to get people to belong more more strongly. <laughs> um, and I just I feel like what we are trying to navigate here is refusing to do that, but instead saying what could it mean to belong for really healthy reasons rather than unhealthy reasons. Um, and how do we belong together in ways where we're able to hold and learn from our differences of all kinds? And here I don't just mean that we believe different things, but there are all sorts of ways in which we are different. You are all experiencing this moment differently from one another. <laughs> so even though we're all having, in some sense, the same experience, which is for most of you listening to me talk and for me talking, I mean, that's a different experience to start with. But you're all having a different experience of me talking. <laughs> uh, all thinking different thoughts, all reacting in different ways for all sorts of different reasons. Um, and bringing yourselves to the conversation, to the discussion, to the hearing and the sharing. And that's a beautiful thing. So what I'd like us to do is to talk about these questions then. Um, the first question is really to say, okay, in the world that we described at the beginning where everything is becoming increasingly polarised, is there something potentially um, meaningful about a different kind of community? Uh, and then the other questions are really coming back more towards what do we learn from being in that kind of community and how do we function within community in healthy ways? So we're going to discuss these three questions maybe with the people that you're sitting around or with or alongside. Uh, for a few minutes, and then see where that gets us. Cool? Happy with that? Great. All right, all right, all right. Hmm? Two more. I think you'll always want two more. Um. We'll, we'll come back together. These are not uh, easy questions. If they were really easy questions, if they, were, if they were easy questions, I guess human society would have sorted itself out by now. Um, but these are difficult and complex and... All sorts of factors intersect into some of these issues. Um, but it's a good conversation to have, I think, uh, and especially in the world we live in at the moment. Are there any thoughts that have emerged in your discussion or group that anyone would be happy to share with the wider team? Anything in particular boiling around in there? Yes. Well... Um, when you first started talking, I started thinking about that documentary, The True Cost. And it's sort of like once you know about fast fashion and what it's doing to other cultures and people groups, it's you can't not live differently. Like you've got it, you can, you could just ignore it. But to me, in the first question about how am I going to respond to that as a, as a, a follow of of Christ's teaching that it's not fair 
and it was wrong that all those people died and the you know the building collapsing and lots of things so how how am I going to be open to hearing the voice of those people in those community where there's pollution now because of the factories and I don't know I'm just that's sort of what I started thinking about and the empire thing So in opening ourselves up in some way to hearing from people who are not in our situation, we actually discover the impact that our choices are having on other people. Yeah. yeah. And in some, case, some cases, well, we've done very well at distancing ourselves from, from the, the impact of our choices in, in those respects. But it is much more confronting and overwhelming, perhaps, and maybe because it's so overwhelming, we just that's why we avoid thinking about it. Um, but I think if that can come to the centre of a conversation for a community, that we continue to hold those kinds of things in front of us and not allow ourselves to become numb to the impact of and the consequences of that, then that becomes grounds for a very different way of being in the world, I think, which I continue to find challenging. Anyone else? Well, we were, we were talking about... Um, the second one, what do we – are we still on the first one? Oh, okay. Um, what do we gain from hearing and experiencing each other's differences? And one was like um, it disarms fear, I guess, because when you personalize something, I mean, I just think it's really difficult to sit in a place of fear. And we were talking about um, we've personally just walked through a journey with someone very close to us who's come out and – I've completely had to face all my prejudice and beliefs around that and ask myself why. And because it's someone I'm in close relationship with, I'm, it's not anymore out there, it's in here. And I'm suddenly like, oh, maybe I, oh, I need to rethink this and how I feel about this and how I treat this person because they're, I'm in relationship with them. So that's been really powerful, I guess, to experience that difference in my personal world because it's no longer a theory about somebody out there. It's my my friend. Yeah, so we were kind of talking about how powerful it is and how we can disarm fear just by listening. Yeah, interesting reflection. I think a lot of our othering, you, you actually hear um, dehumanizing language a lot for people who we want to other because it's easier then to keep them out there. Uh, so language that can make someone more like an object rather than a person, more like a theory than a person, more like a some kind of language to, to in some ways make them less of a person, then we feel much more comfortable about um, pushing them out. Um, and you even hear that in some of the, the well, you heard uh, in the 1930s, that's exactly what Hitler did with, rhetoric about the Jewish people was used dehumanizing language about them so that then everybody was much more comfortable doing what 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 did. And you're seeing the same language used now actually about, um, I mean, in the Christian community, I think, about the LGBT community, that's been the case. Um, and you're also seeing at the moment in the West about uh, migrants, that same kind of, you know, the language of infestation, for example, is dehumanizing, which allows people then to um, turn people into less than human, which then allows them to do things to them that they would never normally do if there was a person, a real person, you know. Yeah, so it's a, it's a really important reflection. 
Um, oh, there's a reaction in the room to the word infestation, wasn't there? <laughs> Greg? Um, I think the question is quite confronting because we immediately put ourselves in the space, I did, well, I'm really open to difference. I mean, I'm just an <laughs> o open kind of guy. And uh, when in actual fact it's, it was the opposite, I think there's parts of me that I'm open to difference if, it, it, if it's the difference that I like. You know what I mean? So that's very confronting for starts because I think I'm open, but when someone comes in that I feel deeply uncomfortable with, it confronts me with my... Very, my partiality or my bias or my prejudice. And I think, so I have to ask myself, so am I open to people being a part of the Christian community who may not behave the way that I think is behaviorally appropriate? So that's when we probably need to have a conversation and, and some discernment. You know, so, you know, when, when they said things like, we don't want Mexicans coming across the border because they're rapists. You know, you know, and that, that rhetoric was fed to the society. What, what do you do with that? Well, you know, we've got to be open. Jesus was open to people in his world, you know, open to people washing his feet with their tears or, you know, having a different... Zacchaeus, who was a rip-off merchant. But he also had some discernment and needed to be able to say, well, look, yes, you need to be a part of us. We need you in, but we also... You, you may need to, to have some behavioural therapy around how that behaviour may, may affect all of us. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's, you know, you know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, it's... So there are issues, I mean, it depends what differences we're talking about, doesn't it, yeah. as well? So, yes, I, I think I mentioned the example of if someone's difference was that they liked to kill everybody. Um, <laughs> you know, you're not like, oh, such a lovely difference, let me... Know, embrace you and learn from you. Um, so there, there, there's always language, because uh, identity and belonging have to do with safety to some degree. So there has to be a, a degree of how do we negotiate what it means to be healthy and safe community, safer communities together. You must always blow on the pie. Um, you know, we have to have those conversations. It's just I th the challenge here is to is to continually reflect on the reasons why we make the decisions about health in a community that we do. Because what sometimes we manage to do is convince ourselves that we're making these we're making these exclusionary decisions for the good of the you know good of the people or the good of our community when really they are just about our prejudice and bias. And on other occasions, maybe it is genuine. Um, issues we have to work through in terms of how does that function within a community and what does it mean to belong to a community in ways which are healthy for, the, for, for people. And so I think those are complex issues that I think continually have to be reflected on in human community. Um, you know, if you think of the, you know, some of the worst examples in terms of how communities um, think about sex offenders and stuff, like that, like that. still, you can see as as a community, we don't quite know what to do with that. How do you, if someone served their time, how do you think about reintegrating them into society and community um, in ways that are safe? Um, and that's complicated, right? Uh, and and you can't pretend it's not complicated. Uh, and safety becomes really important in in those kind of scenarios and situations. Um, so yeah. But isn't that the case that he, he, he was a sex offender? Uh, and, uh, 
So the issue that, that happens so in the King David story, and this is an issue we see playing out at the moment, is what happens when it's the people with the power who are the ones doing the, the oppressive, manipulative, abusive things. And that's a story in itself, right? Um, and that is something that you're seeing at the moment, I think what's happening, for example, in the Me Too movement, and if I can speak to it as a man, which I can do in only a limited way, I would say that um, what we're recognising is that our own justice system, which is developed in a certain kind of way, has limitations to the way in which it works. And it's totally uh, unable to deal with adequately allegations of uh, historic sexual assault. And so people are now, some people have relied on that system to then take advantage of the fact that the justice system has no adequate way to deal with that and use and abuse their power in ways that have enabled them to get away with all sorts of things. And now, and, and so what's happening is this uprising, this beautiful and necessary uprising, beautiful, and, and I mean beautiful not in a soft sense, but I'm, it's like a beautiful anger, you know, um, to say actually even if this system doesn't work to address this, this stuff still needs to be addressed and must be brought to the surface and wherever possible we can address it in the system, yes, let's do that. But even if that's not possible, it must come to the surface and, and be brought to light and consequences must be experienced. But yeah, our own biblical narrative is filled with people for whom they were in positions of power which enabled them to, uh, to get away with an abuse of that power in all sorts of really damaging ways, including most of the biblical heroes I grew up with. Um, yes. Any other thoughts or comments? Yeah, the second question is an interesting, <clears throat> interesting one because there's a need for us to know what we don't know and we usually find that out from other people um, and we don't often have a choice. But the issue is at what point, how big does the difference have to get before it becomes an issue that I'm either going to welcome it in um, is it is it actually stirring my curiosity that Greg referred to last Sunday, or is it actually pushing me too far? And at that point, I tend to gravitate towards people whose differences I can accommodate, like most of you here, or <laughs> or I go somewhere else, you know, where and and. Where I yeah I can feel degrees of different comfort, but if I'm wanting to be really honest to myself, um, I do need to know what I don't know about myself, and some of the some of my thinking with you know theological basis, and that's the interesting journey for me. So I think yeah, and I think um, in healthy community there there does have to be a degree of some things that bind you to you know some things that hold you together right. Um, 
but again, it's discerning what are those things that, that really do matter, what hold us together. In many senses, I think a lot of the early Christian communities were held together by their practices rather than necessarily their be- all of their beliefs all lining up all the time. So their practice of table fellowship was a practice that they participated in together uh, that held them together in a particular kind of way um, that didn't necessarily require them to all sign a statement of faith before they took the meal, you know. Um, but yeah, interest, interesting to reflect on those things. I'm, you know, when I first went on to a marae, as when I was doing some Tereo study, um, I suddenly became aware of all sorts of things about me that I didn't know, all sorts of things about my culture that I just kind of assumed were things, universal things that apparently were not universal things. Uh, and I was sitting there and I was like, oh, but why isn't this happening? And why are they doing that? And why haven't they done that? And what are we doing this for? This is silly. Um, and then, you know, about halfway through the first evening, I was like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> I'm like, when are we going to get to learning stuff? <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, halfway through that, that first evening, I was like, I am learning stuff. Um, I'm learning stuff about me. Uh, and I'm also learning stuff about about an, an, another culture that operates in a totally different way than I'm used to. And it's beautiful if I would pause and pay attention to it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, we're just um, talking about, um, you know, experiencing each other's differences. And for me, I like meeting people from different cultures because I feel like I'm sure that this is true, that every culture has um, strengths and weaknesses. And you don't see your own culture's weaknesses until you can until they come up against another cultures. And also, especially if they have a history in Jesus sort of uh, teaching, then you get to see, even within that, you get to see different archetypes within Jesus. Like some people say to them, it's the sacrifice archetype of Jesus is the, is the, you know, the most important one. And then for others, it's the, it's the sort of child of God living daily, trying to come to terms with being half spirit, half flesh beings. And, and I think it make, pulls me out of my preference and it makes me have to try to appreciate their side and at the end it's always, it's always worth it. Um, I was reflecting about how do we hold beliefs that are important to us without, become, without them becoming weapons and I was thinking that's very hard because um, beliefs that we have or interpretations that we have uh, they define the way we act in the world. They define a lot of things about us. And we can only see if we are a morning star or sandpaper after a day of w- working with our beliefs. Uh, we can only see afterwards the destruction or construction we have created around us. So I don't think, I, I don't think I'm able to be completely humble with my beliefs ever. I, something I struggle with is that I realize um, beliefs are not humble for me. They're often arrogant and very assertive. And and yeah, they they don't necessarily always do me good, even when they have good intentions behind them. So that for me, the, the thing is to try to tell myself every day that I am not humble in my beliefs and that... I'm very certain that my beliefs are true when I when I use them as tools, but in the end, I might be proved wrong, and 
I sure hope I will. Great, thank you. Great reflection. Um, yes, it's it's the. I mean, even coordinating a conversation, right? Facilitating a conversation about the importance of difference. Um, you know, um, yeah, guys, be a bit better at embracing difference, would you? So, um, I think uh, the the job of of someone like me sometimes when I'm I'm the one who's interpreting text and speaking with some sort of knowledge uh, is to recognise that that is um, one perspective in the room that brings a certain kind of um, uh, expertise with it in some respects. Um, but that then becomes open to the experiences and the conversation of other people in which we then participate and talk about that together. So one of the reasons we always have discussion and conversation at formation is to in some ways decenter the own the, the the power, if we want to use that word, that I can hold in the room and in the conversation just by virtue of the fact that I'm the one who often is guiding and and, and leading the conversation. So um but this recognition that yes, I think it is it's an impossible task to have complete openness and humility and maybe it's not even a, 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 a something we should be chasing after fully. Um, and yet uh, the encouragement and the challenge here is to keep holding this before us. Uh, I think that's a part of what the Jesus um, gospel, the Jesus story is doing is bringing things into the centre of the conversation, into the centre of the community and saying, these are things you need to keep talking about. These are things you need to keep reflecting on. These are, th these are questions you need to keep asking. Uh, these are motivations you need to continue examining. Um, not to solve all of them on our first meeting together so that then we can just go about putting that all into the practice for the rest of our lives, but to keep bringing them back to the centre of the conversation. Things that we would rather let drift to the side because they're uncomfortable or inconvenient to, to look at. Perhaps that's why Jesus talks about a narrow path and a wide path. Um, I don't think it's about, you know, sending the, the wide path of people to hell forever um, as much as it is the path to, to this kind of life is not an easy or convenient one um, it's uncomfortable and um, difficult, but beautiful, and and it's where I think the the richness of life is to be found, uh, and and so good spirituality in that sense I think continues inviting us into that space and saying how do we meet God and one another in the midst of that experience and in the midst of that journey in ways that might uh, enhance what it. Uh, our experience of becoming more human, more alive, more loving people in the world. All right. I'll say a brief prayer, shall I? Shall I do that? And then we'll be finished and we'll have some kai together, which will be wonderful. All right. Um, Spirit who is present among us and within us and in each of our stories and our experiences, 
would you fill us again with life and breath and courage, courage to pursue a way of being in the world that might be challenging and difficult at times, but is also an invitation into beauty and into the full human experience. Would you um, in some way help us to remember that in all of our different stories that have brought us even into this room tonight, we also find ourselves united by the same spirit, the same breath, the same language the, amongst our diverse languages. Um, may we be people who somehow in this polarized and kind of angry world at the moment, would we be somehow people who find a way to live differently, to live grounded in love and kindness and an understanding of one another. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Linda? We have dinner. Um, I just wanted to say, just to say something about tonight. Um, does that, that thought? Um, do we do we believe, or do we belong first, then we believe, or do we believe then belong? You know, there's two ways of looking at that. Um, can we belong together without? even believing the same thing. It feels like an almost impossible task because of the, for most of us, the history that we've come through, you know, in the church. Um, but I was thinking about this, um, this my, years ago I had a, my very first spiritual direction. She was 83 and I was about 45. And and she, she must used to think that I was just off my head sometimes, the things that I'd say, you know. And... What she had was compassion and so much love. And so she'd just smile at me. All she would do was smile for an hour and listen to me talk and talk and talk and talk about myself and what I believed and what I thought about the world. And, and she held my – all I really had was opinions. You know, I didn't really know what I was talking about. I don't think I had opinions. But she held them in such a way that I – felt so safe to begin to unravel my opinions. And so the, the key was that she made me feel so welcome and she held my, me and I belonged in her lounge for an hour a month, once a month, you know. And I didn't even matter what she said. She just allowed me to unpack myself. And what changed, what helped me change was her love for me not her opinion because she hardly ever gave it, you know? And I, I just couldn't help but thinking about her in the light of tonight because this is my challenge personally is I I love the fact that at Edge we talk about, you know, we don't need to know everything and uncertainty is dangerous and uncertainty is great. But the other side of that is I just want to be right, you know? <laughs> As much as I don't believe that I have that I know 
what I think. I still want to be right when I think I know what I think. You know, so this kind of walking paradox and um, contradiction in terms. But what I want to be able to be is kind and loving and compassionate so that when we when we do when people who are with us who are different they can belong because they're human and then let's get talking about the things that we are different in and maybe love our love of humanity of each other will be the overriding factor so um and that's my prayer for myself you know and that's the lifetime journey so, so my prayer for us all so yeah so yeah thank you it's awesome amazing stuff and um enjoy dinner and just um yeah Chuck a couple of bucks in there and have a feast. Thank you.